This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Trescott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak, and this is episode 30. 30 seems like it's becoming a big number. 30 seems like we're coming along. And I have to say that, first thing, if you want to rush by my intro where I give all my current insight and get straight into my conversation with author Carol G, no hurt feelings, just jump somewhere around the 22-minute mark. Pass me on over and just go listen to her. Otherwise, just keep on listening. 30 really does represent this shift for me. It's when I felt this shift. And I'm going to give a lot of credit to my guest today, Carol G. She is such a storyteller. And honestly, on episode 30, as I was going in to record it, what I really felt for myself and what was going on in my head is that Chelsea, focus on the stories. Focus on the stories. And... I just knew I had to. I knew I had to make that shift. And listen, it's not going to happen with every guest. I recorded an episode just the other day, and I could see that it wasn't her comfortable place to be talking about the story with her ex. And I think that was also great. We spoke tons about her creativity and what that's done for her spirit. And I know that so many people that listen to that episode and to this podcast overall are going to be looking for a conversation like that. And it's going to help them whether they're going through heartbreak or not. But I knew that in recording episode 30 that I had to begin focusing on stories, beginning there at least, getting to that essence. And so I told Carol, Carol, I really want to get more story from my guests. And that's all he said. And she was like, I'm your woman. And she certainly was. I didn't know how it was going to go. I never do. And I like that. And I kind of want to remind anyone that's coming onto this podcast and listening to it for the first time. A big thing, a big motivation as I sit down with a guest, sometimes virtually, often virtually, is that... I want it to be quote unquote, not to be like this, you know, woo woo person, but organic. And the reason for that is that I want this podcast to encourage you that you can begin a dialogue with anyone as well, that you do not have to know them. You don't have to prep with them. You don't have to know what you're going to go in and what you're going to ask them in order to get them to begin speaking. As you will see from this episode, Carol does the talking. She does. And oh, I was just mesmerized. And it created a real shift in me. Again, that's why I say that episode 30 has been this shift. And I've seen it affect my days. I've noticed that from this episode and going forward, all the other episodes I've recorded from then till now, that all together it's created this shift. I'm 
just feel more elated. I feel more at peace, but also more inspired. This podcast isn't going to end. I have so many guests coming up for you guys. I also really need to do another solo episode. I loved those. I love doing those. But listen, there's so much I want to say to you today. I will have to save that for a solo episode, but I do want to just tell you a few points. One thing is, is that when I first had the idea for Thank You Heartbreak, I wanted it to be a series where I just interviewed people. I thought that that's what what would work, you know, that what people wanted. I was looking at other podcast formats and I saw that there were so many podcasts that were also popular that had this format of, you know, interviewing creatives that have started their own careers and really getting into those conversations with creatives. And I thought, wait a second, but no one has merged the topic of heartbreak being the catalyst for the creativity, the catalyst for reinvention and career. So that was my idea. And I did that series with Mogul. I'm still doing it. Carol is also featured in that series. I will link it in the show notes. But then as I got closer to beginning the podcast, I felt, oh shoot, interviewing one guest after the other is going to be unattainable. No, 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 no. Uh, there's going to be technical issues, possibilities. It's going to be your hurdles. This is way too much to sign up. I, I can't do it. No one's going to be interested in me yet. And so I did solo, 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 and that built the momentum. And it surprised me that I could sit down in front of a mic and speak easily for an hour and that it was actually like you could listen to it. I was actually saying something. I had a lot to say. Who would know? So that has been huge for me. But now seeing the shift where, you guys, I have so many guests lined up. I've already recorded so many interviews. I mean, I could do it every freaking day and put out an episode. I'm literally tempted. It's that exciting. So it just shows you that sometimes you back away and maybe you need to. The intimidation, maybe it serves a purpose. And the purpose is is that I began with the solo episodes and that showed me a side of myself that has, you know, proven worthy. It really is valuable to have those episodes. And again, I want to continue them, but to see that in myself. But then that opening, that expression eventually, without even a plan, leads you into where you did want to go. But you thought that no one would have the interest or that, again, the technicalities would be too much to deal with. And so that's where I'm at now. And I'm so excited. You guys, I just feel happy. It hit me today. It hit me. It was a revelation that I am not sad. I have not felt sad now in a while. And I say that because this time last year, I had such an extreme amount of anxiety surrounding my work. I literally had to force myself to get somewhere in the morning that didn't have to do with my work in order to do the work later on, to keep on going. And that place ended up being talk shows. Thank God New York is filled with them. And it was that, it was, well, it was a talk show. I've always, like, this is seeming like a revelation. It's, it's really not, but I wanted to be a talk show host. I know that I'm far from it. I know I have a lot to learn, a long way to go, but I wanted to be a talk show host when I was like my youngest and I felt like you had to become famous to do that. So I won't even go down that thing, but that's who I wanted to be growing up. And so I started going to talk shows in order to get me out of bed. And that took me into background acting, which has really shifted my life. And look at me, I'm finally doing the projects that a year ago I wanted to do. But beyond just that, beyond just that anxiety, that panic, when I moved back to New York in 2014, and 
it went on for two years maybe. I really was fighting the sadness. And every morning I said I woke up and had to talk myself out of sadness. So this is just this point, this, this revelation that I had today that I am not there anymore. And why it's important that it was a revelation, that it is a revelation, is that I believe that it's the, the things that you can do, that you can try to do on the daily. You need to build a lifestyle for yourself. You have to think about what you can do that you can integrate into a life. It's not a flash in the pan of something. It's, it's not a big hit that's going to change and mold you and really transform you. It's the subtle things that you don't know if it's enough. You don't know if you're picking up on the effects yet or if anyone else is. But it's the subtle, subtle, subtle differences that wake you up to yourself. Maybe in a year, maybe sooner. And you say, oh my God, I am different. I don't just feel different. I am different inside myself. I am engaging differently and I haven't been so focused on it. That's my biggest thing, man. I haven't been so focused on whether I'm happy or not. I am. And so this seems like a big, big moment for me. And I just have so much gratitude for you listening to this. You are helping my spirit so much. You are giving other people a place to come to tell their stories. I had a guest thank me this week when I was interviewing them. They said, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I'm never given the opportunity to just speak for an hour about myself and my story. No one ever asks. That is what this podcast is for. That is what these conversations are about. It's so important to ask someone something about themselves. It's so important that you can be a channel for others to open up, soften around people, give them the space, the encouragement, the energy that you are interested. They say, if you want to be interesting to others, be interested in others. If you want to be interesting to others be interested in others. I was very interested in Carol G and I only became more interested as the conversation went on. I know that you will feel this too. Again, she is such a storyteller and she's also the first guest to come on Thank You Heartbreak that has a really different shift in her story. After 13 years of marriage, her husband got quieter and quieter and he wouldn't give her a reason and she felt like she owed it to herself to do the hard thing and ask for a marital time out. She had worked so hard to be strong, get to where she was, to have companionship and dedication to a partner. But she wanted that companionship. And she felt that she owed it to herself to have this break, to step away if he didn't have a reason or a timeline, if he didn't want her help or could open up about what it was, she needed the space from him. And so she got that space. She went on to create a life for herself in a different city. Well, it was a different country, really. She came back to America. She was in Oklahoma City. And she created this life for herself, this comfortable life. And then two years later, she got back together with her husband. And her story is about that. It's also about independence and really the fact that wildly enough thank you dr diane episode 29 and turning my mind on to secure sophia well carol sounds a lot like a secure sophia and she really approached her relationship her marriage and her ex from a place of secure attachment 
And I really think it's why the marriage worked, why she's back with her husband and they celebrated in March 2018, 45 years together, their happiest years together. And I believe that she came from a secure place and I think it's a very hard place to come from. And I think it's why most couples can't get back together. I get this question a lot and it is possible, but you have to go in with a fresh mind and you can't go in with accusations. You will hear Carol talk about what she went in with and and her experience, but I'll give you a little preview, is that she didn't focus on the past. She didn't try to get the answers that she couldn't get before. She didn't ask what it was. What was it that made you quiet? You didn't tell me before, tell me now. She didn't ask, who were you dating? Did you fall in love while we weren't together? She didn't ask. What she did ask was very coach-based, was very solution-focused, which is what I was certified in, and it was oriented to the future. Well, if we're going to be together, if we can solve this for ourselves, I have to know one thing. What is our future going to look like? That's what she focused on, and it worked out for her. She also talks about what inspired her to join the Air Force. I loved that. She believes that it was her military experience that turned her into a warrior woman that could initiate the tough but necessary calls. She says that friends said what she was doing, having this separation, going to a new city, rebuilding her life was brave. She says it wasn't brave. I didn't feel brave. She was brave and you'll hear it just through her own story. But again, what's so interesting about this is that there's a bit of a, a disconnect. Again, when you don't even, aren't even aware of that emotion, like I'm saying, I'm not even aware that I haven't been sad. You just are it. And I think that's kind of the biggest thing when you're not so focused on being brave. You're just focused on, in a sense, pushing forward, becoming yourself, sticking by the choice that you made for yourself, sticking by that choice to break up, to pull ahead, to break upward. And that's really the brave act. That's how you become the person that to others appears brave and that really is brave. She also talks about overcoming her biggest fear, showed her that she could handle anything from here on out. And I want to tell you that when people pitch themselves to me to come on this podcast, there's always something in each story and each pitch that resonates with me. And that really just makes me want to go to them and bring them on. And in this pitch, two things really stuck out to me and of course resonated with me. And that was being a talkative woman, dating, in her case, married though, to a quiet man and... Carol talks about the fear that she had was a fear of driving long distance. It was about being in her car. Now, the reason the car thing really resonated with me is that when I was living in LA, I had my car there and for the most part, I've always had a convertible and driving a convertible has always made me happy. Putting the top back, I'm not someone growing up in Miami that was ever on the beach. I was never like necessarily like an outdoorsy person. I was also, you know, a writer for most of my life. So I was indoors. But when I would get into my car, I would become a part of the world. That's really what I felt. I'd have the top back and I felt like I was in it. Finally, I was in it. And I'd blast the music and it just adrenaline rushing, just peace, happiness. And so when I was in LA, the worst point in my life, I had completely isolated myself. I've talked about it on other episodes. I'd been in like my fourth or something long distance relationship and had no friends and 
was addicted to Adderall, was in a master's program where I felt like the odd one out, just everything. It was just bad. But I knew, because I really believe that we all know two things at least that we feel like we can do or must do that could save our spirit just a little. My two things were car-related. I could press two buttons, two small, 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 small moves. I could turn the music on and I could put my top back. I knew it, just those two things, two different buttons, music on, top back. And I never did it. I lived there two years. I never did it. I drove around as if I were in a cage. You know what they say about LA. You're commuting all the time. You're under your car a lot. So imagine I was in this car And I had the opportunity to not feel caged in and I kept myself caged in. I kept myself small and hurting. The story didn't end there either. And this is when the healing began. And again, another point where I really connect with Carol and that was returning to Miami after living in LA and really beginning a point of honesty and healing. I mean, the time was now. The time was upon me. And I remember being in my car, my twin sister actually being there with me too, and even with her presence, feeling like it was difficult to drive, difficult to drive comfortably. And yet, when I was living in Miami before, when I was living in San Francisco, I mean, I could drive easily, but that was no longer where I was at. And I remember in the early days of beginning to heal myself, and this was a long process, being in that car with my sister and driving and getting some muffins from this bakery that we love, getting some iced coffees, and then almost being home and being like, no, 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 let me keep driving, listening to that voice, keep going, just go a little bit further, go find that guy's car that you keep obsessing over. We would find weird reasons, fun reasons, to keep driving just a little bit further. And it felt difficult, man, it felt silly, man, but I did it and it helped. And I talk to clients about this, and even for them, it kind of comes back to the car, the feeling of, of being in that car, getting into that car when things are bad, and they're on their couch analyzing things, and they can't lift themselves out of their bed, but they get into their car, and they put their music on, and they keep driving, and the desire to take themselves someplace, to just know that they're heading somewhere, and there's no real pressure. They're moving towards something, and there's this feeling what more can I do? And it's, I see a restaurant. I just saw a restaurant that I want to go to and it's parking the car and getting out to the restaurant. It's something small like that. It's turning on the music and putting the windows down and giving yourself that moment, being swept away in it. Look for the small things, guys, and see how that gets you closer to overcoming, dare I say, yourself. The fear you have of who you can be on your own. The fear of really your own potential. They say it's not our weakness that panics us. It's our strength. It's our power. I've always believed this, that we want desire. We want to have that gap to be chasing after something, not yet knowing how it will make us fear, but we're just pushed pushed on and on and we're talking about where we're going they're saying once I get there once I get there I will feel at peace once I get there I will feel powerful I will feel deserving I will feel respected I will feel alive once I get there until I get there though 
but you don't want to get there then. Because what if you get there and you are wrong? What if nothing feels different? Most people feel that your life is going to be over because you have no idea what to do. Everything's been about getting there. I can tell you it's not about getting there. We'll talk about this on another podcast episode, but I can give you example after haunting example. It's not about getting there. It's not about waiting to get there. It's not about there. It's not about there. Do not fear the feelings that you believe will come with feeling your power. Do not fear the responsibility that coming into your own might give you, the responsibility to act more. For me, you know, to get more guests on, to be in conversations, to have to listen to how I sound. There's been so much involved in that with just having conversations of, oh, just so ego-based, so much ego. Don't fear it. Because you know what also can be there is a thrilling, shocking, startling degree of self-acceptance that I see myself. I, I see myself coming into a power. I see maybe how I'm shifting a little bit to the left and I want to come a little bit to the right more, whatever, you know, but I see it, but I am proud. I am inspired. I'm driven and I appreciate myself and my efforts, regardless of how those efforts make me feel or how they kind of psych me out at times. I appreciate myself because I'm doing the things I know I must do that I believe if I do them, they will make me feel better and better perhaps quickly. I just encourage you to begin embracing those actions. I cannot wait for you to hear Carol G, a retired military vet, a motivational speaker, an educator, and a four-time author of random notes about life, stuff, and finally learning to exhale, gilded pearls, vibrant thoughts, tips, and tidbits for a full life, her breakout book, The Venus Chronicles, and Diary of a Fly Girl Wannabe. She again has the most infectious laugh, and truly... I just can't wait to get back to Atlanta so I can go out to lunch with her and thank her for coming on and for filling up my heart so much that because of the way I felt listening to her, that has changed so much of my days going forward. They really have created a shift. Carol created a shift. So thank you to her and thank you to you for listening, for being here with me and for giving Thank You Heartbreak your attention and a chance. Now, let's get to Carol's brave story of returning to love. All right, Carol. So I want you to introduce yourself to my audience. I'm Carol G. How do you spell your last name? Carol G. It's G-E-E, like G-Wiz, golly G. I feel like you've had a sense of humor about that your whole life. Oh, yes, because I think the name is so short that when I spell it, people are always waiting to hear if there are other letters that go behind it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, dot, dot, dot. So where are you from? Well, I was born in Virginia, raised in Washington, D.C. So I tell people after 20 years of serving in the military and living all over the world that I am a citizen of the world. Often people say, you have an accent. And then I share that story with them. <laughs> You do have an accent, but the beautiful thing for me is that I don't know anything about geography. Totally, you know, cheated or flirted my way through that course. So I don't know where I would say your accent sounds like it's from, but I do sense an accent. 
So I think it's probably a combination of probably everywhere I lived, I guess. Before we get into your love story, I'm so curious, what made you decide to get into the military? My parents both worked for civil service in Washington, D.C., but my mother had always did hair. She was also a licensed beautician, so her second hustle was 40 years of treating other people's hair. So when she had finished her 20 years in the city, she decided to she wanted to move back to her small town in Virginia. And uh, as you can imagine what this was like for me, entering the 12th grade. Oh, my uh, gosh. <laughs> After living in one place with so many years and having all my little friends there, going into a new place um, was really traumatic. Also added to that, this is a small factory town. This is in the early 70s. little small factory town that at the time had three different factories. And pretty much that was it. That's what people did in this town. So... Once I graduated from high school, that's what I did. I got a factory job like most people did. Because at that time, I didn't have any way to go to college. I took all the college prep courses and, and prepared myself without money and how to go about getting financial aid and all that stuff. Uh, working one year in this factory, my life seemed really desolate. Uh, I went in one morning and sat down and work was hard. It was dirty and sometimes it was dangerous. And one day... I was on break in the break room and I was leafing through a magazine and I came across an article, an advertisement for the Air Force. And in the advertising, there were three individuals. There was uh, two females and one male. And there was one African-American male. I'm African-American. There was one African-American female. And she looked so pretty in her little uniform sitting in front of this machine with all these dials. And, you know, most of these little things, they have like those little cutouts that you put your name fill it out and stick it in the mail. That's what I did. Stuck it in the mail and completely forgot all about it until the recruiter called. <laughs> oh my God. Wouldn't you just die to, to find that woman that you saw in the magazine and be like, oh, I sure would. I especially, especially times when times were tough in basic training. I wanted to say to her, see, you got me into this. <laughs> oh my God. You're like, this is not pretty. You are pretty, but this isn't pretty. <laughs> What a story. You know, a little something that you had written me was, well, not that you had written me, that I read of yours from your book is that, you know, with fairy tales that you never saw someone that looked like you. Yeah, it was. It was very few, in fact, of sharing my stories. Going back to how Ronnie and I met, like I mentioned, when I first went into the service in the early 70s, there were very few women in the military. Obviously, today, there are lots of women serving in all branches of the military. But when I went in, to give you just an example, after basic training for six weeks, everybody does basic training. After basic training, I went to tech school. I was an inventory management specialist, which was basically supplies, working in supplies. And after uh, doing that, my first permanent base was a base in Idaho. At the time, women and men were separated by dormitories. So I lived in this big pink barracks and there were dorms, men, you know, all, uh, all across. When I first got on the base, there was 23 women there, a 22 women there. I made 23. Two other women came about two weeks apart. We made 25 women total to so almost 200 men. That I gives you an idea of what that was like. Well, there's only like 25 women on The Bachelor show, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I, think well, the odds, I think the odds <laughs> were in your favor. 
Yeah, well, yeah, it was. I write in my book, Random Notes, there's a little section in it that talks about the men who are all colors, shapes, and sizes. They were like Skittles, and I couldn't wait to taste the rainbow. <laughs> oh, my God. Were you able to taste the rainbow? Was there time No, actually, I was prayed to death. I was raised by a very strict parent. I um, didn't do much dating because, as you remember, when I initially started talking, I grew up around the same friends for so many years. Yeah. So it would have been dating would have been like dating your brother or your cousin. <laughs> yeah. And so, <laughs> so, you know, going into the military with all these different men and stuff, I was a little, a little frightened. And then, too, back in the day, military women had sort of a stigma attached to them. Well, I remember when I told people I was going into the military, these women who came to my mother's beauty shop always said, now, why are you going into the service? And every woman that came in there had a voice of doom. Mrs. So-and-so's daughter went into the army and she came back and she was a nervous wreck. Uh, Sister So-and-so from the church's niece went into the Navy and she came back a drunkard. I was thinking to myself, you know, if I was going to do all that stuff, I could do this right here. I was a little circumspect around men because I always thought people had this kind of reputation or thought of what military women were like, maybe loose women or something. So people did come back. These stories were that they came back and basically they were kind of broken. And that ha- obviously that happens today. How many times do we yes. hear about veterans coming back from the service? Um, you know, that something's going on with them. I, there was a term back in the day, I had an uncle that served in the army. And when he came back, he had a lot of issues. And the old people in my neighborhood said he was shell-shocked, which uh-huh. meant that, you know, the army, uh, mm-hmm. you know, did something to them. And obviously it does to a lot of people, unfortunately. I saw the greatest documentary. It was called Thank You for Your Service. And in it, it says that people come back and, you know, people will thank them on the street, let's say, for their service. And Mm -hmm. you don't even know what you're thanking me for. That happened to my husband and I all the time. Louise, tell Uh, me more about that. What does that mean? My my husband uh, stayed in the Air Force for 20 years. He he liked what he was doing. He was in food service uh, in the Air Force. And so he liked to what he was doing. He went to the Air Force at 18 years old, also came from a very small town. So when he retired, he was 38 years old after 28 years of, of military. So he was still young enough to do a new career, which he did. And he often wears a ball cap. You know how sometimes you see men wear like a baseball cap. But over the years, I've gotten them several that says either U.S. Air Force retired or U.S. veteran or Vietnam era. We were we are called Vietnam airmen. Most of us served near the end of the fall of Saigon. So we are called Vietnam era, not Vietnam vet. That's oh, different. I see. Uh, and so he, he always wears it. That's just kind of what he does. He wears a ball cap. Me, I only do it when my hair is looking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so we have gone places and he's had his cap on and people come up and shake his hand and thank him for his service. And then he'll turn to me and they said, and my wife also served. And of course, you know, they'll shake my hand and thank me. And I'm, somebody asked me one time, how does that make me feel? And in fact, I, I'm also a freelance writer, not only a book author, but a freelance writer. And I wrote about this too. I think it was one of the Harrow pieces, how that made me feel. And I said, you know, I appreciate it. um, And I really appreciate the thought that people do appreciate that I did did serve, but that it was my honor to serve. Oh, interesting. And like, so you shouldn't have to be thanked. Exactly. It is. I appreciate the thought of it. And also a lot of times we will go places and people in one year, we went on a little 
little road trip from our house uh, to a little, like a little uh, park kind of getaway. And my husband had his baseball cap on and we went to the gate to pay for, you know, a lot of times you go to these parks, some of the special parks with flowers and botanicals and things. Sometimes you have like a fee. And when my husband and I rolled down the car window to pay this gentleman who was at the gate, he saw my husband uh, wearing his cap and he waved our fee. Now I thought that was very nice. Because anybody could appreciate having a bargain or somebody being kind to you, you know? Of course, of course. And another time we went to a restaurant in a little small town where we were visiting and we were hungry and my husband went inside to get something to eat. And I waited in the car. And again, he had his baseball cap on because he just wears a cap. (laughs) And uh, he went in and the gentleman in the restaurant um, talked to him. He asked him a little bit about his service. And when Ronnie went to get uh, dessert, the guy gave him some free dessert. And my husband said, I have my wife in the car. He said, I don't expect you to give to her. I'm willing to pay. And the gentleman both gave us cake. And I thought that was just so very nice. That is so sweet. And I love how it seems like each time it surprises you. Because I don't expect it. You know, the Air Force for me was a job. In fact, the Air Force helped my whole trajectory. After serving in the military, I was able to use my GI benefits to go to college. Not only did I obtain a bachelor's degree, but a master's degree, which meant when I completed my programs, I didn't owe anybody any money. Congratulations. Yeah, so it wasn't like some expecting things, but when people are especially nice, it's very nice, you know? So you seem like such a lively person. I like to think so. (laughs) Yes, you are. It's not that you just sound it, you are, I can tell. And something that I really, really, really related to you when you wrote in is that you ended up marrying someone that was really quiet. And I remember like, for most of my dating life, I would wind up with really quiet men and I would feel really lonely. So I want to hear about how you, like, well, one, one question is, what does your husband think of this part of your personality? After 45 years of marriage, he's used to it. But <laughs> I think, <laughs> but after, I think when we first got together, I wrote a piece um, and I think I wrote a piece for a magazine that was published where the university where I worked before I recently retired after close to 28 years working in higher education at the college university level. And I live in Atlanta. So I worked for 20 years at Atlanta's Emory University. And uh, while I was at Emory, I wrote a lot of kind of scholastic like pieces that were published in sort of the staff and faculty uh, magazines on campus. And the Emory has a center called the Center for Women. And they focus on uh, women's, obviously, women's health, not only health, health, but uh, violence and sexual assault and any kind of things that might pertain to women in general. And they had a magazine called Emory News and Narratives. And I wrote a piece called Intimate some, some years back and talked about that. I said, Ronnie uh, is quiet and I am not so much. I'm also a romantic. Again, him, not so much. So... <laughs> So you can imagine what that was like when we first got together. But one of the things I remembered was there were so many positives about him that it wasn't until we got married and I started to think about the differences that I realized he was not a talker. And I'm like, how did I miss that when we were dating? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Because especially (laughs) like I have felt like, and this could be flawed thinking that I'm having to get over in life, but the (laughs) romance to me was the talking, you know? yeah. It wasn't until later that like you woke up one day and you're like, oh my God, these qualities that are so romantic to me, they're not there. 
Exactly. But, you know, I've always, speaking of being a romantic, I've always been a romantic. And and I tell people, because some people are always asking us, how is it you've been married for 45 years? What is that like? And, you know, I kind of share with them. So one day I asked Ronnie um, this same question and being quiet, you know, I was really surprised that he didn't hesitate to say, being married to you, he said, I never know what to expect from you from one minute to the next. And I find that I like that. So, <laughs> wait, he likes that. Yes, he likes the unexpected because for our, if for romance, so I'm the romantic person. So I take charge of that. Where he is not so romantic, I create romantic moments just out of the drop of a hat. I shared with somebody, I said, back when we were both working, he's now retired. I, I spend my life writing and freelancing my books and promoting my books and whatever. But uh, when we were working and some days we had a crazy, crazy schedule. And on Wednesday, you know, Wednesday is hump day to celebrate hump day i might make a simple meal uh, serve it on our good china in the dining room just because we survived till wednesday i love it <laughs> i feel like i feel like you're such a vision that he loves watching you know like oh, yeah. <laughs> seriously i think that there's probably yeah i feel like there's probably such a romance to watching you and and knowing that he's with you Oh, yeah, it is. And I tell people now that um, after this, you know, I wrote about our little separation and what that was like for me. It was hard. I talked to people and I share um, random notes, my latest a book that women are called Girlfriend Books, Essay Driven. And so it's sort of my life story and it's sort of coming of age. Uh, things that I realize now that perhaps I didn't realize when I was younger. A lot of it is obviously parts of my relationship, love, romance and things that women deal with. And it's sort of the things that maybe we would talk with our girlfriends about. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of the things that maybe we will say for our favorite girlfriend might not be something we would share with everybody. Mm -hmm. But I believe that uh, women support women by what they know that I'm willing to share. And so when Ron and I had this little, what I call a marital time out, people came up to me and said, girl, you're so brave. I wasn't brave at all. I was, I was scared. I didn't know what it would like be single again after 13 years as a couple. But I knew that I had to break the status quo that we were in and it had to be up to me. Talk to me about why you ended up making that decision. Why did you know that you had to break the status quo? I told you, my husband's very quiet. And for whatever reason, after about 13 years of marriage, and we were stayed, he, my husband stayed on active duty. He made a career. I made a career of, of military, but I spent time, eight years on active duty, and then 14 years on a reserve. So I was a part-time soldier for those remaining years. Um, so we were stationed in Panama, which is a lovely, lovely country. But Panama was a very, mm, a country that the male seems to have the most in importance. And I had always considered Ron and I to be equal partners in everything. i give you a little example. We lived in military housing and there would be a time that something broke in the house while he was at work and I happened to be home when the civil engineering person came to fix it. Once he finished it, I was able to sign the work order at the completion of the work. Well, in Panama, for whatever reason, my husband was regarded as the sponsor since he was the active duty person. And so I couldn't sign something basic like a work order. 
or person who had always felt like an equal partner. That was a little hard, but it wasn't the big thing. And then one day, after we'd been there maybe six months, he came home, and I could tell something was bothering him. And I'm one of these kind of people that maybe being a soldier makes me like this. If there's a problem, I'm going to figure out how to solve it. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to admit that sometimes you can't solve everybody's problems, you know, yes. so that's kind of who I am. You know, if you said you had a problem, you know, I have a wart on my forehead. And I'm like, girl, I tell you, I know what you can use to fix it, you know. Yes, you're a magician. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, he came, he went to his military job and he came back home and increasingly got quieter, didn't want to talk about whatever's going on. I don't know if it was a work situation he was going through. He was in his early 30s, so I called call it a midlife crisis for men. Maybe that's what he's going through. But I asked that I believe me, meeting things head on. So I asked him, was there someone else? And he said, no, it wasn't. And I could imagine that it wasn't because he went to work and came back home. So unless uh, she was at the job, they didn't spend too much time. And I laugh and tell people that I managed all our money because he didn't care about his finances. So she didn't have any money from him. So that relationship probably wouldn't work very long. <laughs> and also there wasn't Tinder back then. So you didn't think he was swiping. Exactly. Wasn't swiping left or right or upside down or nothing. He could not tell me what or wouldn't tell me because he's not good at sharing feelings. I am. I'm going to tell you if something's going on with me. But he wouldn't or couldn't. And I let this go on for a few more months. And we were very respectful to each other. We have always been. We're not the kind of couple that cusses out each other. We're very respectful. But it was just this lull in our relationship. And after a few months of this, and of course, I've always been very independent, so he didn't stop me from going out with my friends, but I married him for love and companionship. And you know, going out with your girlfriends, that's nice sometimes, but you don't want to be doing that all the time if you've got a husband at all. Yeah, you don't want to make a living out of it. You don't want to make a a, a habit. Yeah. Exactly. So one day, I guess I'd sort of had enough. It didn't look like anything was changing. So one day I asked him, I said, you said that you didn't know what was going on or you can't tell me what's going on. Do you see it changing anytime soon? And he said, no, I don't. And I said, okay. I'm not willing to let this go on. Who knows? Since I don't know what's going on with, how do I know how long this is going to go on? I'm not willing to walk around on eggshells for eight years, nine years, 10 years. And so I asked him, I said, well, uh, if you don't know, then I want you to go to your commanding officer the next day and have me sent back to the United States. I mean, that is brave though. I know that you felt scared after, but it's so brave. I felt like I had to do this just for, for me. Well, you lost think. yourself. Yeah, and I, and I couldn't. And I had worked so hard all my life to be strong and be this person who I was turning into be. And I just was not willing to just ride this out for however long time it was. And um, I definitely did not want to go back to the small town uh, where my mom and dad lived. And so, and I was thinking, okay, where can I go? And my reserve unit been assigned to a reserve unit at a base out in Oklahoma City. And I had gone there for several years for reserve summer camp, which was usually 12 to 15 days. And I had met a couple of lovely people. And as I mentioned, I'm very independent. So I felt if I go out there, maybe one of them would help me to find an apartment. That's all I would need. Obviously, would find a job here. I have a, a master's degree, uh, you know, lots of job experience. I have worked pretty much all my life. So I've got great experience. So just kind of point me there and help me get settled and I'm on my own and that's that's what happened. 
But as I stated in my pitch to you, one of my fears more than being alone and scared of what it was going to be like being alone again after being part of a couple for 13 years was driving long distance. I had never mm-hmm. driven long distance. We had always driven uh, whenever we were being shipped to another stateside base. My husband had always driven while I rode shotgun because back then it wasn't GPS. So, of course, you know, we got lost many times because I was not reading the map right. <laughs> well, you know that more divorces back then happened because a woman couldn't read a map right. Well, I think, well, I think so. Not so and I, a lot of it, we ended up having lots of misadventures, but they actually turned out to be fun and memorable stories. Oh, it's so but good. That, but that was my fear. And one of the things that happened was when I came back, I had to ship my car from Panama to Oklahoma. And the closest port to Oklahoma Fort is New Orleans. When the Uncle Sam sent me the paperwork that my car had arrived at the port and I needed to come and pick it up, that was the problem. Okay, now how am I going to go and do this? So my two friends out there, I asked if one of them would go with me. I would pay their, their airfare one way. We fly down and help me drive back. I begged, I pleaded, uh, but none of them could actually get off work or whatever the circumstances was. So I had no choice. I needed my car to kind of continue to get settled and and live my life for as long as this was going to happen. Because when I left, I had no idea that we'd reunite. I prayed for that. But you know, when you do that, you just don't know. I flew down to um, New Orleans and picked up my car. Picking up my car was the easy part. I showed my military ID and my military orders, picked up my car, gassed. It was a Honda hatchback. That was a great little car. And I got on the road. Well, my friends, even though they couldn't go with me, one mapped out the route, best route for me. So one did that. And with others, another warned me when I got to the Dallas Loop to be careful uh, because Dallas Loop, I guess, goes around and around. Anybody who lives in Dallas or travel probably seen that. I've seen it. And, uh-huh. and, uh, and one final warning with hugs and kisses is don't get caught going into Shreveport because then you'd have to you have this two lane road to do. So with much trepidation, I gassed up my car and I got on the road. Wouldn't you know, I got to Shreveport. And before I I realized that I'd gone too far to make any time, so I just rode it. And I rode behind cars with chickens. And I rode behind cars, trucks with pigs and horses and every farm animal you can think of until I was able to pass them. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) And And you were just shaking at the wheel? Oh, I was. I was shaking at the wheel and I had told myself, you know, I said, I gassed up and, and, uh, and I said, well, whatever happens, I'm not getting out of this car, you know, because I don't know if you've driven long distance, but driving long distance by yourself as a woman can be scary. Yeah. And particularly scary if you don't know what the heck you're doing. Yeah. And so, but I did it and um, I kept driving and driving and, and finally, sometimes I make a little bit of time. There was no, you know, not, wasn't a lot of cars in certain little ports, parts of the little two lane road. And um, probably close to about four o'clock in the afternoon, I remember my back started to cramp up and my tummy started to hurt. And I said to myself, as I saw a sign that said, I want to say I'm 35 miles outside of Dallas, and Oklahoma City is roughly three and a half hours from Dallas. 
And so I said to them, I have this conversation with myself now. I'm now I'm going to start looking for some place that looks safe for tonight. Because you have to be careful where you stay on the highway too. And I saw a motel that looked relatively safe. And I told myself, okay, I'm kind of starting to feel bad now. I'm going to pull in, spend the night, get up early in the morning, get to Dallas, and hopefully make the rest of my trip to Oklahoma on the next morning. So that's what I did. I spent the night at this hotel. I didn't have a restaurant, but I was so tired and achy that I just got some chips and a soda at, at the snack in a little vending machines. And I took some Tylenol for my backache and I took a shower and I crashed. And the next morning found me on the Dallas Loop, wouldn't you know? Oh. <laughs> Eight o'clock in the morning, cars are whizzing by me because obviously they knew where they were going. And as I began to notice that I'd seen one building, I thought I'd seen it a couple of times. I'm saying, okay, I probably need to take an exit here and try to get my bearings. And I did that. And the exit that I took led me a little bit off road to this kind of a warehouse looking place. And as I approached the warehouse, there was a lot of activity, people loading trucks and what have you. And I approached this uh, lovely um, African-American gentleman and he was loading a truck and I rolled down my window and I said, excuse me, sir, I've gotten turned around and I'm trying to get to the freeway to get to Oklahoma City. Could you help me? And you know how people give you directions. They're like, oh, go down this road and turn right, then cross the bridge and turn left and do a U-turn. And he must have saw my eyes glazed over. Because <laughs> he said, he said, if you can wait till my partner finishes getting this load and we load this on the truck, we'll show you. And I think, oh goodness. And I prayed to myself, dear Lord, please don't let these men take me somewhere and kill me. Because oh, right. I decided that I wasn't going to get out of my car. I'm going to keep my windows rolled down. And if they tried, they're going to have a fight on their hands. And uh, so they did. His partner came out, loaded some stuff on the truck, and they got on in the truck, and I'm following behind him on the freeway. And we probably maybe rode about maybe 10 minutes or so, and they were ahead of me, and I was behind them, and there was a toot. And I looked up, and I saw the sign that I-35 to Oklahoma City. And they tooted again, and I tooted, and they went on to where they were, and I kept on going. That's so sweet. Oh. And I realized that the, that day I had conquered my worst fear. And that if anything was going to happen of doing this separation or whatever followed, I could deal with it. Mm. I love how it wasn't, fear wasn't related to something with a romance. It was mm-hmm. what you... Survival. Yeah. And, Survival for me. And you didn't stop in the middle of the highway and just turn your car yeah. off. No, oh, I, there were many times I thought about it, believe to me. There were times that I, too, when I was behind all these smelly animals and the chickens, the feathers were flowing around me like snow, you know, blowing <laughs> on my windshield. And there were times I wanted to cry and say, oh, Lord, did I make a mistake? Right. But you didn't go down that avenue of thought. No, but I had no choice. It was like, you yeah. know, you, what do you do? You go so far that you can't turn back. I think that there's such power to knowing that you have choices of how you handle things, but then there's something oh, yeah. huge about oh, yeah. setting yourself up in life where you have no other choice. Mm-hmm. Like I that. think my military experience was a large part of that. I went through a lot um, serving in the military. As I mentioned, it changed my whole life's trajectory. I was this little scared child, young woman. I was 20 years old when I left and went into the service. I call that run away from home. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. When I ran away from home, I was 20 years old. I was sheltered. I was naive. But I came out of eight years of service and became this warrior woman. Warrior woman. And I think becoming this warrior woman helped me to make a hard decision. And I tell people that I believe doing what I did helped us to realize that we were stronger together than we were apart. And it sounds like coming to that decision was a decision of strength, not of like, oh my God, I feel so weak. We need each other back. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I, like I said, I never felt that. I missed him. And I still loved him. And obviously he loved me. We kept in touch. He would call and I would talk to him. But my whole thing was I made this choice. I've got to move forward with this. I've got to survive. One time when I first got to the new city, uh, being an educator, one of my blessings was I went to the little junior college, which was probably a few miles from my apartment. And I went and spoke to the dean of the college. And I got on as an adjunct faculty. I had two classes. So that helped with paying my rent, you know, and my other incidentals. And then also I was an active reservist. So once a month I did my reserve training. And every summertime, uh, every summer I did my 12 to 15 uh, days of training, which I got paid for. And the first year, even doing that, I still wanted a little bit more extra money. So I got hired on doing the Christmas help at a mall, which was really close to my house. So actually where I chose to live, everything was really close to me, which wasn't, it was just by happenstance, Mm -hmm. you know, because I wasn't too familiar with the city. Uh, the state college, the junior college where I worked was only a few blocks. The mall was literally down the street from my apartment complex. And I got a job with this as a seasonal help for um, working for Montgomery Wards, which is no longer available. And I was interviewed by this lovely woman who was the assistant store manager. And during the six or eight weeks that we were working, often we were working together. Sometimes she would be on the, the sales floor where I was. Often she and I would end up in gift wrap or wherever. And we actually talked. I really liked her and admired her. And when everybody was getting ready to be let go for the seasonal season, I expected to be let go, but I had managed to save some money, which was really good. And um, one day she calls me into her office and, um, you know, and I figured this was, you know, thank you so much. You did a good job. Um, Maybe we'll hire you again next Christmas. Well, as it turned out, the children's department manager had given his notice and she asked me, would I be interested in his job? So things fell in place for me, which also gave me validation that I had made the right choices. Wow. Yes. Yes. It's so amazing. Like you're saying that things were close by. It's like everything was designed to make you feel comfortable. I think so. And I always contributed that to my uh, hopefully being a good person. Well, it sounds like it for sure. You had to have been, you know, to have been offered that job. Mm -hmm. Just attitude. I'm sure as yeah, well. Yeah, I think so. I've always tried to have a positive attitude. It's like, okay, my mom used to use a phrase, you made your bed hard, you have to lay in it. So I realized I had made my bed hard, and some days it was like a rock child. <laughs> oh my God, so say this again. You made your bed hard, now you have to lay in it? Uh-huh, that's an old, that's an old folk saying. You make your bed, you make your, make your bed hard, you lay in it. It's like I you did, make these choices, then you deal with that. I never heard the hard part. I just heard you mm-hmm. make your bed. I like the uh-huh. hard part. Yeah, you make it, make it hard, you lay in it. So you imagine what a hard bed feels like. Oh, gosh, yes. There were times, I don't, I want to lie, there were times things still did seem a little, little hard. I was lonely, mm-hmm. and I missed him. I missed being part of a couple. 
but I wanted him to miss me enough to maybe fight for us, you know. So is that what happened? Yeah, it was. He was at the end of his tour. He had the option to retire from the Air Force or take another assignment. And as I mentioned, we kept in contact with each other. The love was still there, I could tell. that I, To this day, I don't know what he was dealing with. It's, it's not important. To me, it's not important. And so um, one of the times when, when he called me, he said, I have an opportunity to be stationed in Florida. And he said, I wanted to see if you'd be interesting. First, I'd like to come and visit you. And maybe we can talk about my options. And I've always been sort of adventuresome. So I'm thinking, Florida. And he told me what part. And I immediately got out information so I could see what was there, see if there's a chance that I could, you know, get a job somewhere and maybe a university, some kind of job. Also, if it was an opportunity that I could do my reserve training, because I still was in the reserves. I hadn't retired at that time. A few days later, I guess he thought about it. And he said, I think I'm going to retire. He'd already did a little bit over 20 years. And he said, but I'd like to come out and visit you. Is that all right? And I said, sure. And so when he came to visit, we talked. And um, again, I didn't ask him what was going on. I just told him we'd have to kind of discuss where we saw ourselves going. Mm. And then I had to decide if this is something I was willing to take a chance on again. What I tell people when they ask me, like, if I, you know, separate, is it all ruined? Can we get back together? You know, there's always those questions as a breakup coach. Mm -hmm. That you have to go in with fresh eyes. You know, mm -hmm. it has to feel like a new relationship. And I think one way that you're able to do that is what would our future look like? Let's not talk about where you're at in the past. I take it you didn't ask him who he had been dating, if he had been dating. No. I had dated, and I, there was a lovely man. I dated a lovely man, and as I think back on it, I probably was not very fair to him because I told him up front that we were legally and emotionally separated. Not so much legally, but more emotionally because we didn't do any paperwork, but that I had hoped that we would be able to get together. I felt that I had to be honest because I didn't want to have him set up his sights and maybe fall in love with me because I'm fabulous. You know? yes, yes. <laughs> and, then, and then break his heart. You know, I've always tried to put myself in the feelings of other people. But then, too, I had gotten very attached to this gentleman. And so I had to also think, too, whether I was willing to give up a relationship that I thought I knew for one that was sort of still unsettled, even though there was love there. How did you choose? Well, like I had always believed that my husband was my soulmate, despite our differences, him being quiet, mine not so much. We had always had very good values of fidelity and loyalty and respect. We both were hard workers. He, once my husband retired, he accepted a wonderful job at a, a research hospital here in Atlanta and worked there for over 20 years before recently retired himself because of some health issues. And so we'd always worked really, really hard and won awards for our, uh, you know, outstanding employment and all that kind of stuff. So we had values that were compatible to each other. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I had to almost weigh what I knew from what I didn't quite know and was still learning. Mm. And I chose the, what I knew. You know, because he seemed like he was remorseful and, you know, and um, and I decided and what we did, we said we would talk about it and we would take our time and see how things went. And that's what we did. So you felt like you were also patient going into it. Yeah, I think so. Because frankly, I was not in a hurry because we had been separated over two and a half years. I'd already established a new life. Yes.
I was talking yesterday, I had a guest on and it became, she was kind of having a session with me and she was Mm -hmm. talking about attachment styles and she recognized mine as like an expressive giver, but that she has these names for it that really I'm like a nervous Nancy in relationship. That did not Mm -hmm. sound good. And she was saying, you want to be a secure Sophia and be Mm -hmm. confident and calm. Who I am. Yes, that's what it sounds like to me. Mm-hmm. And when you got re when you got in touch with him again and when he was coming to visit you, it sounds like you really came from a place not of being nervous about it, not mm-hmm. being nervous of what he had been up to, not trying to f- seek out answers. You were mm-hmm. just calm, secure, and mm-hmm. not in a rush. Okay, yeah, because I, like I said, I had made made a new life for myself. I had worked hard, those working those three jobs to reestablish my independence. I had a life. This I dated this gentleman who was a lovely, lovely man. So the few times that we were able to go out, because when you work three jobs, literally, you don't have a whole lot of time to socialize. Yeah, he was a divorced father and he still had, you know, children. And so, you know, on the t- days that we were off, we would go and take in a movie or we'd go to a club or go out to eat. And uh, so, you know, that was good for me. And it, I, I think for whatever reason at that time, it worked for him too. So I was not in a rush to get back to a relationship that might or might not work. I feel like you'd be so good at, at reading some of the letters that I receive. And a lot of them are from men. And I want to see if I can kind of just summarize you know, sure. the, these letters because I, I'd love to know your opinion. Men that reach out to me. It's a story about how there's a woman they meet and there's intense chemistry in the beginning passion and you know probably something happens quickly the woman starts withdrawing and it's this mixed message of i'm not ready for you but i want to see you right now i'm not ready and basically by the end of it they're saying listen i need to step away from this i need time i'm not ready for this just wait maybe i'll come back and these men they want to act they don't they don't know how to listen to that and just wait because they feel like that's not acting towards something and pursuing it. What would you say to these men that are dealing with this situation? Well, like, first of all, I would think for, depending on how he really feels about the woman, if this is a person that he really cares about, then he needs to give her space if he hopes that this will work with them. By him rushing her and putting her on the defensive, by pushing her to be ready when she's not, I don't think does their relationship any service. Mm -hmm. Agree. Then I started thinking that... Some people want to know that other people desire them, especially without someone, you know, it it feels good to have the option, but you don't really want to pursue the option. And I started wondering like how many women though, people in general just can't say to someone, I'm not that into you. I think there's a lot of women that a lot of people, I think based on both sexes, it's hard for them because most of us, I think really want to be kind to each other. Mm-hmm. And so if you come out and say, okay, I'm really not that into you, that really hurts somebody's feelings. And I know if I was really feeling attached to a person and they said that to me, that would kind of make me feel bad. So instead of doing that, we probably do things that kind of show that we're not. Just pulling away, yeah. uh, you know, give me some more time. And of course, the old famous and not you, it's me. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, and maybe they think that's less hurtful that than saying I'm not that into you. But I don't think it is less hurtful. Maybe the words are just different, you know? 
Right. I think it's like kind of this idea of like, get the message, get the picture. Yeah, really. If I'm not wanting to kiss you anymore, if I don't want to go out with you, maybe this should tell you something, you know? Yeah. Actions speak louder than words. But then I realized exactly. that then, you know, really. what's so hard from them is that's what's torturous. Yeah. And anyone, you know, women, I think this is a common female story, but I hear it a lot from men that write into my column or that hire me. It's very similar. I think just overall mm-hmm. what tortures them Again, is the unknown or hope, potential, but not not thinking anything is lining up. Well, you know, and I kind of can understand that from the man's point of view, especially if this individual's goal is to get married and have a family and stuff, then you sort of kind of want to know if the intended is on the right page. I had a friend one time who uh, was dating a guy. They had dated maybe a good 10 years. And their goal when these two people met were eventually maybe marry and have some kids. And for whatever reason, uh, they couldn't get that right. And it was kind of the guy was a love, a lovely man. He would he'd be the kind of person that you hear people say, give you the shirt off his back. But my friend, she was more independent, sort of like me. She had been married in a terrible relationship and got out of it early, thank God, and was independent and owned her own house, had a good job. And so for whatever reason, they could never get together. And But I used to always talk to her and I'd say, well, you know, you guys going on 10 years, are where are you headed? And she really didn't know. And I think, frankly, for me, I need to know where things are headed, mm-hmm. especially after 10 years. Especially if my goal is to get married and maybe have children or, or whatever it is. I, and I don't knock anybody who's on a you know, long relationship. People have to decide what works for them and what is good for them. Right. Frankly, for me, uh, I think my initially going, we started out with this in mind and it doesn't look like we're getting to that point. I need to know where we're going to go because I don't want to waste your time and I don't want you to waste my time. Because that's all we have in life. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that ultimately sometimes people do just out of fear, they'll stay in something and they'll say, well, the years are building up. The time is building up and history will keep us together. That will be why we finally commit is that we feel indebted to each other. Oh yeah. Cause people, not so much friends, maybe acquaintances say, well, you guys have been married for 13 years. You've invested a lot of time. And I say, yes, but what if I live to be 85 years old and then we've wasted this time and yet neither one of us are going any place. We're still together, but we're not together. You know, if he's doing his thing and I'm doing my own thing and we can't be together, be the couple that I want us to be, then, you know, perhaps I'm not the person. Maybe he would, could find love with someone else. And so could I for the next 65 years. Yes. You're right. A lot of people will say that because it is comfortable. It's what they know. I thought I owed myself something better than not knowing. Mm. And I was willing to see where it was because that's, like I said, I had no illusion that we will ever be together. But frankly, I think the time apart helped us. One day we had one of the same couple that I talked about, the female and the gentleman I just talked about where the two never could seem to get on the same page, came down to visit us in Atlanta several years ago. Now, unfortunately, both of them are now deceased. Mm-hmm. But when they came to visit us, uh, Ronnie and I had just gotten back to together and we took his retirement, moved and moved to Georgia and um, they came to visit us. And he said, and I was surprised, they said, he said, I messed around not knowing what was going on with me and I almost lost my wife forever. Oh, that's so sweet. 
And so he realized that whatever was going on, uh, if he chose not to deal with it the way I need him to deal with it, he had a hand in making me go. Yes. Even though you guys, it sounds like you didn't have to talk about the details. It seems like he took responsibility on his own. Yeah, he did. I think he knew that. And I think he came to realize that we were better together than we were ever apart. Did you guys had always been a team? I think that's what you were saying also about your relationship with the values. You know, you weren't like a meshed with each other. It wasn't just what kind of people think of with like chemistry and romance and all those things. It seems like you were comfortable living side by side together. Oh, we were. We were. We were actually best friends. And we are to this day. I do believe in my heart this separation opened both of our eyes. Right now, I can tell you, March the 3rd, uh, 2018, we, we celebrated 45 years together. Wow. And I feel in the last 10 years, perhaps, I feel that we finally got on the very exact same page. We can laugh with each other. And I probably does a lot more laughing at me. Because <laughs> 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 I do um, get into some situations, but he has always, always, always been very supportive of any of these endeavors uh, that I've done. I've taken him on trips. I am the social animal, obviously. So uh-huh. I I've planned trips and he'll tell people on his job, there used to be a thing they'll say, well, where's your wife taking you for vacation? He'll say, I don't know. He said, I just know probably I'll go home one day and she'll say, um, take some time off such and such a date because we're going away. And I know that I need to pack my little suitcase and I may need my passport because I won't know until we get to the airport. <laughs> I love that. And I love that you didn't try to change him to be more like you. You Oh, no. I didn't want to change him. I loved him for who he was. But I wanted him to realize how important we were together. Mm. And whatever he was dealing with, I do believe that we could have conquered it had he gave me the courtesy of letting me know what it was. Right. And so now, you know, so we're constantly on little, little travels the last 24 years. He's had some health issues off and on. Uh, we've withstood those and I think become stronger. I know I've become stronger dealing with some of his health issues, but we are still a team. And I can really tell people that we are really genuinely happy. I asked him about that the other day. I said, you know, I feel happy. Do you feel happy in our relationship? And he said, yes. We enjoy hanging out together. We enjoy experiencing new things together. One of the things I love about him is he, even though he's quiet, he's adventuresome. I'll say, honey, let's go to this new restaurant that I learned about. I'm not sure what it is. One of the faculty members or one of my staff colleagues told me about it, but let's check it out. And we've gone to places that the food was not good, but we were there together and we experienced it together. Yes. Experiences. Mm-hmm. So you said something that these last 10 years, you realize that you're on the same page. Mm-hmm. What would you say to someone that thinks that they can only, you know, get married or commit to someone if they're on the, the same exact page right now? I think they limit themselves when they do that. I think the most wonderful part of our relationship is the venturesomeness of our relationship. Like I mentioned, a lot of times he would, in fact, one day we were talking, we were just sitting talking. He said, you know, I don't think I would have ever done a lot of the things that I've done in my life if it hadn't been for you. Mm. You know, like I said, I've taken him on exotic trips. We spent a week, one week at a resort in Aruba some years ago, courtesy of my supervisor who turned out to be like family. She had a timeshare. And so she gave me that gift. Um, one year. 
in another year. Uh, she asked me where I wanted to go on vacation. I hadn't thought about it. And she had one of those international timeshares. And she said, what do you think about going to the Dominican Republic? And I think, okay, I'll go. So I came home and told Ronnie, I said, this is where we're going to go. What do you think about it? It's supposed to be very beautiful. He said, wherever you want to go, I'm with you. I think it would be very boring, I think, if you're on the same page on everything with somebody, don't you? True. Interesting. Yeah. I think you have to be on board with the important things, important things like respect and paying your bills on time and, you know, making big decisions together. As I mentioned, I'm pretty independent and I will do pretty much what I want to do, but I often ask him his thoughts on things just to give him the courtesy of and He'll tell me, I don't know why you asking me, because I think you probably already made up your mind. <laughs> and I'll say, yes, I have, but what do you think? <laughs> so good. <laughs> and you're like, whatever you think, but whatever you want to do, I'm going to support you. Poor man. He has more gray hair being married to me. <laughs> I, but you know what? Every time I date a guy, I feel like they get grayer and I love it. They become more. Me too. <laughs> you know, the wisdom is just shows. The wisdom shows on them. I don't think it's stress. I think it's all wisdom, all that gray. Oh, I, oh, I think so too. I, I, oh, those are oh, the gray hairs that pop on my head. Not so much, but I wear my hair kind of tinted, uh, sort of blonde streaks. So I just do a little bit of blonde streaks on that and cover those up. Make people uh, think that's a natural hair color. <laughs> So I'm trying to think of a good final question. I don't know what it should be because I feel like, I feel like I've known you forever now. You're so well, how about I sum up something? In order to find love, always follow your bliss. Hmm. Bliss takes you. Follow it. My bliss took me to happily ever after. Did you read the piece, Finally Getting a Happily Ever After? Yeah, but, and, and I want you to say, explain, you realized it actually means... It meant when I was a girl, I had a fairy tale idea of um, living happily ever after. You know, uh, I love the fairy tales. I was always was a reader before I became a writer. And I love the fairy tales that began once upon a time and they lived happily ever after. My happily ever after, as I wrote about, would be a man who was a great conversationalist. Of course, he would be tall, dark, and handsome, which my husband is. He's not dark. He's medium complexion. And he has the prettiest hazel eyes. But as life went on, as I mentioned, I discovered that he wasn't in a talker. He was quiet, but he was also very sweet. For example, he loves, I love lottery scratch-offs. And so he will buy them and hide them around the house for me to find them, knowing that finding them makes me as giddy as a schoolgirl. And that he puts a lot of thought in where he places it. One time he, I found some in the teepee in the guest bathroom. And I don't know how many days it had been there, but I guess he eventually, uh, eventually thought I'd have to use the downstairs bathroom. <laughs> I read that he put it in your lingerie drawer. Yes, in my lingerie drawer. So wherever I find him, I am giddy. And of course, if I scratch off some money, I'm equally giddy. Now, being that he's not a romantic, he's not a hand-holding person. I always wanted somebody to hold my hand. But when we cross a busy street, he holds my hand. I tell myself that it's because he doesn't want me to get killed before I can go home and make dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's more so he wants me to be safe. So in other words, the fairy tale that I dreamt about as a young girl has really become so much different as an adult. But it's much sweeter and it's much more richer. It is. I wanted to cry when I read that because you, you talked about, you know, when you're young, you read these stories and they're grand gestures. And now mm -hmm. he has simple gestures. Simple gestures. Simple gestures are the ones that mean the most. You know, where I'd probably want him to take me to a romantic dinner and feed me bonbons, he may go and detail my car. 
and make sure I have gas and inflate my tires. Romance of a young girl is a lot different when you've been married to the same man for 20, 30, 35, 40 years. It reminds me real fast that I saw an ex-boyfriend of mine at a wedding in Oklahoma. I was just there. (laughs) Oh, I love Oklahoma. (laughs) I was in Oklahoma. And so when you're talking about this, it's like, take him back. So Mm -hmm. I I haven't seen him probably in eight years. And at the end of the wedding, it was like a weekend wedding while I was leaving. And I said, listen, I just, I have to tell you something that I tell other people when I think about all my relationships, something that really stands out is with you. I think he was like nervous about what I was Uh Mm -hmm. And I said, it was always the most romantic thing. Whenever we were going across the San Francisco bridge or the Bay Bridge to go to San Francisco, Uh he would always pay for my toll and then take out all these singles and fill up my, you know, my car with singles for when I was going to be alone and have to go through it. And that has always stood out, that gesture. He did so many things, but like that to me is what I remember about him. I just loved that. Like your husband detailing your car. Mm-hmm. Without me asking, because one day, one day I was at, in the house doing something. I think I was writing, uh, writing something. I uh, my freelance work has appeared in lots of magazines, thank goodness, and continue to do so. So it's wonderful. And uh, I was doing something, and he went out. He said, oh, "I'll be right back." And I said, "Okay." We have three cars. Uh, he has his luxury car that I bought him on his 60th birthday, and uh, he still has. I call with his uh, 2095 Camry, which he loves, and we keep it running and looking good. And um, and when he went out. We normally drive our own cars because I hate when he adjusts my car, adjusts my mirror, adjusts my seat because then I have to figure out how to get it back to where I want it. So uh, we drive our own cars. But anyway, I looked out in the garage for some reason, saw my car was gone. And when he came back from somewhere, I said, What'd you do? He said, I saw that your tire looked a little flat. He said, And while I was out, I also cleaned your car. I'm thinking that was sweet of you. And goodness knows I hadn't washed my car in years. If it hadn't been for the rain, it'd never get washed. <laughs> right, right. Like, dope, are you kidding me? That's why it rains, doesn't it? So I thought that was so sweet. I said, well, thank you, sweetie. And I always try to remember to thank him when he does a sweet gesture. Absolutely. I look back on relationships that have ended and I say that I wish that I had just said I love you in a different way another time Mm -hmm. I wish that I had thanked the person for something Mm -hmm. else relationships are like we have this privilege to be able to say I love you for a certain reason I see this in you and thank Mm -hmm. you and I think and I think that's important is like I said whenever he does something really sweet sometimes just out of the blue I say you know I love you I love that you're adventuresome I love that you make me laugh and I do you know he does make me laugh uh being quiet sometimes he'll come out with something very very profound you know I really appreciate that and like when we're going somewhere and hanging out together I just enjoy hanging out together even when we go to doctor's appointments um I usually go with him now that I'm able to because he doesn't tell me the truth about his health and so I go with it but it may, instead of making it old people going to the doctor's appointment we'll have lunch afterwards or maybe we'll run into Target and he gets some new underwear or, or something yeah. but I wanted to make it more about an outing than going to the doctor that's such a good point but the best part of when we are together is we have the deepest conversations when we are in the car together. Yes. When we're in the car together, we don't talk to other people on cell phones. The same way we don't talk to other people or text when we're enjoying a meal together. As I'm thinking, you know, you can't enjoy a meal for five. How long does it take you to eat a meal? Maybe 10, 20, 15 minutes. You can't devote that time to the person in front of you. 
my favorite dates are going out to dinner and then realizing that you just somehow you weren't kicked out, but somehow you're there for five hours talking to each other. Oh yes, we have done that. We've gone and for every and we do, we still go out on a date every now and then. I'll find a place that I've heard about or somebody told me about or some place I've gone with girlfriends that I'll bring him to cuz he's never been. And you know, we'll sit and order our meal and sometimes we'll have a cocktail or whatever. And when I look up, you know, we we finish, but we just enjoy hanging together. You're such a special person. Oh, thank you. I've tried all my life to be, and that's why I wanted him to realize I'm this special person, buddy. Realize it now. He woke up. He definitely yes, did. He did. Thank goodness. I am glad that he did, and I think he is too. Well, tell my audience where they can find you, where they can read you. See my website. Check out my archive blogs at, um, of course, the www. www. Venus Chronicles, like Venus, the goddess of love, Venus Chronicles with a S dot net, N-E-T. And my latest girlfriend book is called Random Notes about life stuff and finally learning to exhale. Mm-hmm. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble online, all the online sites. You will be able to laugh out loud. I gave you permission to laugh out loud about my life and stories. Oh, I love that. I give you permission, just like your husband <laughs>, laughs out loud at you. That's right. Yeah, I give you permission to laugh out loud. Buy a f- copy for your friend. Buy a copy for mom. No sexual innuendos or curse words. Just good, clean fun. Everybody needs to know the answer to the question, what's a diva to do when a scarf tries to kill her? That you said, and I'm trying to remember it exactly, but it was like women supporting women is showing them what you know. Yes, I read a quote, and I can't remember exactly, but the quote was, and it really touched, resonated me. Important that women share what we know with each other, mm-hmm. and that's what I try to do with my books, which women call girlfriend books. And so the girlfriend book uh, and random note share relationships. It talks about love. It talks about the days that I wore a pair of pa- cheap pantyhose and they threatened to fall down in the middle of a busy street. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Chelsea. I really enjoyed it. I felt like I made a friend today. Oh my goodness. I really hope that you felt connected and in Carol's story and that you felt elated just as I did by her laugh. A recap of where you can find Carol G is on her website, venuschronicles.net, V-E-N-U-S-C-H-R-O-N-I-C-L-E-S.net. You can also find her books, Random Notes About Life, Stuff, and Finally Learning to Exhale, Gilded Pearls, Vibrant Thoughts, Tips and Tidbits for a Full Life, The Venus Chronicles, Diary of a Fly Girl Wannabe on Amazon, and all the online platforms that are out there. There's many. Go looking for her. If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at BreakUpward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D, dot com. 
And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.